Hello, and welcome to the Lend Hoping Nothing podcast. I'm Michael Humphreys, and I'm happy to be talking to you today. This is episode seven, and today we're going to be talking about shareholding, and in particular, the new policy uh, essay on shareholding. Now, it's available at the New Polity blog, so I feel free to talk about this because I did write a response to this essay, which is going to be published in the New Polity magazine issue 4.2. I'm not exactly sure when that's going to be coming out because, at least in my electronic subscription, I haven't yet received 4.1 as of the time of this recording. Now, Mark Barnes also responded to me, and that's going to be published in that same uh, issue. And, um, you know, I would encourage people to uh, read all three of those essays together. So the original shareholding, my essay, and then Mark's response to me. Because I, I think it will really show uh, the problem that Mark has in defending, given how he has to shift some of his positions, um, the kind of things that he has to concede, and then also um, the clarification that he provides uh, is also very revealing because I think with my original essay, I was reading the original shareholding essay uh, too charitably, and I think Mark um, discussing that uh, brings it into a worse position. So read all three of them together. This podcast isn't going to be exclusively talking, uh, you know, reiterating what's in my essay. It's going to be talking about a few other things, taking into account that clarification from Mark, but also discussing some of the uh, more interesting arguments that Mark makes, because there was a recent podcast or live stream that Mark and Jacob did about the USCCB investment guidelines. And I'll be addressing that near the end of this podcast uh, and kind of talking about some of the problems with that. Now, there is a lot to talk about in this shareholding essay. You know, my essay was almost 10,000 words in response to this. So I'm going to break this up into two separate essays. The first part, this part's going to deal with shareholding. And then the second part is going to be do dealing with stock trading or, or speculation and their arguments against that. So uh, hopefully this doesn't go too long uh, and it's a little bit more manageable to listen to. So kind of jumping off from there, I want to start by making some initial distinctions. And this will help uh, kind of explain my focus and uh, my the way I'm approaching this. So there is a distinction between something that is evil, uh, what's called accidentally, and something that is evil in itself or by its very nature. So something that's evil accidentally might be evil because of particular circumstances or bad intention. So, for example, if you give to the poor, that's a good thing. That's licit. However, if you give to the poor with a bad intention from pride, that bad intention makes the act evil. And so it, is, uh, it becomes an evil act. Or if you give to the poor, but you yourself are completely impoverished, such that you can't take care of yourself, and so you have to go beg and... Um, or you have to go steal even to just provide for your own bodily needs, 
that those type of circumstances can also make the act uh, evil. But these are accidental things. It doesn't get to the nature of the act because giving to the poor is a good act. Now, acts that are evil in themselves are evil by their very nature, and so they can never be done righteously. So adultery, for example, is this type of act. There is no way to commit adultery righteously. You can give to the poor righteously. You can also do it wrongly. But adultery in and of itself can never be done righteously. And this is important. Um, and these type of acts are called intrinsically evil. And they can never be done. We ought never to do something that is evil from its very nature. So this is important for, for a couple of reasons. So firstly, um, Jacob recently came out uh, and claimed that it was Catholic moral theology that intrinsically evil acts can be done. And he said this on the Meaning of Catholic podcast. This is in fact false. This is not Catholic teaching. Uh, this is, as he says, it is basic moral theology, but he gets it wrong. Um, and maybe it's unclear. Maybe he could explain it later a little bit better. But to say that you can do an intrinsically evil act is not even a coherent statement. Now, the reason I bring this up is a few. First, because it's false. And second, um, because it might kind of help us show and understand where Jacob and potentially Mark are coming from, because uh, it seems like a lot of these arguments um, focus on uh, shareholding and stock trading as intrinsically evil, evil from its very nature. And then also, if Jacob is incorrect about this type of basic moral theology, then we might be suspicious of him as a witness or interpreter of other parts of moral theology, which gives us good reason to question some of the things that he claims. So to be clear, this is not an ad hominem because I'm not saying he's wrong because of this error. I'm saying that um, it's potential to be uh, question his reliability. So the second reason I bring up this, um, this distinction between something that is evil in itself and evil accidentally, is because Jacob and Mark have a lot of things to say about um, shareholding and stock trading uh, as it is evil accidentally. So they talk about how uh, Apple uh, doing buybacks uh, merely to drive up the price uh, is problematic, and I would agree with that. In fact, there's some of the tradition, some various canonists, and even Alphonsus Liguori that says creating scarcity just to drive up prices is, um, is evil, and one ought not to do that. So I agree with that. But buybacks in themselves can have good reasons, and you can do it well. There might be reasons to adjust one's capital structure, for example, in a company. So this is really this intention to just drive up the the price yes that would make the act evil or the flippant way that people buy and sell on their their phones for example 
I, I would agree that is also kind of problematic. And I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, talk about all those accidental problems and how we can move towards a more righteous way of, you know, buying and selling and investing. But what I want to focus on in this particular podcast is I want to focus on their arguments that really cut to the nature of shareholding and stock trading as such. Because if these are evil in themselves, then those kind of accidental questions are uh, more or less irrelevant. Because, sure, you can commit adultery in really, really bad ways, but you shouldn't be committing adultery at all to begin with. So that's kind of why I want to focus on this and uh, focus on those particular um, arguments, because I also think those are wrong. So that's going to be the kind of focus of this, uh, of the next two podcasts. But the second thing I kind of want to focus on is the distinction between shareholding and stock trading. So shareholding in itself, owning a share in a company, gives you certain claims and rights over that company. Um, and it doesn't necessarily seem to be like a behavior that may be considered morally good or not, but enacting those those claims and exercising those rights is something that you can kind of talk about or the kind of way that these things are, are problematic. So for example, uh, are, is this real ownership, which is an argument they'll, they'll talk about. Now, this is distinct from stock trading because stock trading is the actual buying and selling of shares in a company. So this is very clearly a particular type of behavior that we're talking about. Now, shareholding will often involve stock trading because in order to get a share in a company, you're more than likely going to have to buy it. And then at some point down the line, you may sell it. You may give it to, you know, hand it down through um, to your heirs and so forth. But at some point, it's probably going to be sold. So shareholding in general involves some sort of stock trading eventually, but it's also the kind of beginning and end of shareholding. It may be a way to, to differentiate them. So making that distinction, um, in this one, I want to focus on shareholding. And that's because the essay itself, um, the way at least I kind of organize it in, in my thought, and there's different ways of doing this, is that there's kind of an initial section that focuses on the origin and history of modern companies. Then it kind of gets into uh, the modern practice of modern companies. And then finally, at the last section, you know, the moral arguments that are really specifically against stock trading rather than the shareholding. And so uh, I'm going to focus on the kind of arguments against shareholding that are in those first two sections. And then in the next episode, I'll discuss uh, stock trading uh, and their the meat of their moral arguments against uh, speculation. So to kind of get into the essay now, there's uh, there's they say a lot of different things, but there are three kind of areas that I thought 
were particularly uh, poignant or important in their arguments against shareholding. And that was one a kind of argument against uh, or the absence of proportionate profits in modern companies, the absence of a dominion and specifically a dominion of use, and finally, uh, shareholder responsibility. And this is kind of where we'll get into some of the questions about the live stream. So the proportionate profit. Now, they kind of start off talking about the societas. And this was a medieval contract that has its real origins back in, in Roman law. So even in the ancient Roman Empire, uh, people were engaging in societas contracts and these are really partnerships. So two or more people come together to achieve some particular goal. Uh, and these had a very, uh, a very broad and, and wide range of potential applications. So some of them involved people, uh, both bringing together their, their capital and their labor. Some of them called silent partnerships involved one party. Uh, bringing just capital and one party bringing just labor uh, to achieve some particular end. So you could see this as maybe like a um, a blacksmith and then someone who has money to fund that blacksmith, or maybe he has some um, some goods or something that the blacksmith could work on that they could then sell together. And typically, these these arrangements were terminal contracts. So they would either last for like one venture, uh, like uh, sailing to the Holy Land and back, or they could last for up to, I think the longest one I had seen was seven years. Uh, and sometimes they were serial one after the other. So they would engage in a societas and, and complete that venture and then take the all the profits and then put that into the next one and then the next one, the next one, the next one. So typically the profits were shared, uh, you know, in proportion to how much you put in. So if you put in, you know, $100 or $50 or $10, you would receive a portion of the profits in accord with how much you put in. Uh, some of the, the silent contracts or the silent partnerships where one person is just bringing in capital, one person is bringing in just labor, the capitalists would receive like 75% of the um, of the profits, and then the laborer would receive twenty five percent. But there was really varied arrangements. Like you could have, you know, ten silent partners and one working partner. So it was it was very uh, very many different ways of enacting this. And the silent partnership is actually a very important example. But um, the place that the societas takes in this essay seems that it's really taken by Jacob and Mark as somehow paradigmatic or central because they talk about the move uh, in a modern company from these proportionate profits to dividends as a radical break. Um, they talk about um, how these dividends are not proportional profits, and this is a problem. And that giving up your due, your legal right to these proportional profits is deranged. Now, part of this has to do 
with discussions around market value and speculation. But that isn't the morality of that isn't addressed until much later in the essay. So there's a couple of issues that is worth discussing here. So as we noted, the societas was a terminal venture. And so you get to the end of it, and what do you do? You liquidate all of the assets, or maybe you just have cash anyways. But you liquidate the assets, and then you disperse that to everyone. There's nothing left. There's nothing more you're going to do. So you just give it to people proportionally. The issue, though, is with a modern company, it is not a terminal venture, but it's an ongoing venture. And so there's a question about, like, well, how do we deal with this? How much of the profits do maybe we keep because we're interested in continuing to grow the business? How much do we keep in case of emergencies? How much do we maybe pay out? So these are important questions. Um, and so that really is the crux of the difference, is that there is a difference in just the very nature of these contracts, that one is essentially terminal and the other is ongoing, and so they have to treat the profits differently. And so one of the problems might be that we're going to reinvest all of that money back into the company so that we can continue to grow the company. Now, how does that benefit the stockholder? Well, if you're reinvesting that money, hopefully the business is continuing to grow. The business is increasing in value. We can have disputes about market price and market value all we want, but there is a real value to the company. There is a real just price to the company. And if it's increasing in value, that's a good thing. And having that as your goal is potentially a good way to generate wealth. So really the difference uh, between these two, the proportional profits, is doesn't seem to be as significant of an issue. In fact, it doesn't seem to be an issue at all. If you were a sole proprietor of the company, you would have to make these, uh, you know, of a bakery, for example, you'd have to make these same sort of decisions. How much am I going to pay out to myself versus how much am I going to reinvest in the company? And so there's all sorts of great reasons you would uh, think about this. So uh, it's not as crazy or a radical break uh, because the societas is not um, this paradigm that everything needs to follow. So the second thing that I wanted to discuss is that one of the, the issues they bring up is this um, dominion of use. And so I'll quote them. So the common shareholder does not even have a right to visit the assets of the company. If someone who owns some share in Ford decides he wants to see the famous assembly lines and walks into the factory, he will not be greeted as a member of the company. Rather, he will be dragged out by the security team. There is no proper category for a shareholder who does not work for the company or sit on the board of directors. His claim is ethereal, and his ownership does not entail dominion, control, or use of what is owned. There is no metaphysical reality to his, quote, ownership. So there, there's that last sentence has a, a lot there, um, because 
we're talking not only about uh, use, but we're talking about dominion and control. We'll get to that in the next section when we're talking about shareholder responsibility. But here is really the the problem of use. And I'm focusing on this because uh, Mark and Jacob are claiming that uh, this is a problem and it makes the ownership ethereal. And so it has, quote unquote, no metaphysical reality. I'm not quite sure what they mean by that. I would really like them to have to explain what what they mean by metaphysical reality there. Um, I have my own thoughts about ownership and the metaphysics of ownership, but obviously it's very different. But um, the issue here with, with use is just one that cuts to the nature of partnerships and shared ownership in general. This is not specific to modern companies. For example, uh, if you're a sole proprietor of a restaurant, you can just go into the restaurant, make yourself a sandwich, eat it, and that's great. But if you are a partner in a in a um, in a restaurant, then you no longer have exclusive ownership of the restaurant and all of the goods held there. So if you go into the restaurant and you make yourself a sandwich, you're somehow uh, violating the rights of the other um, the other partners. And so there's this sense that there's a loss of exclusive ownership of this kind of dominion of use uh, when you are um, a, a partner. And so this just is in the nature of partnership in general. And so when you go even further and, um, you know, for example, let's say that's a silent partnership where you have someone who's actually running the, the restaurant and you and a few other people are, in, are investing and you have the capital invested in that. But if you take that even further back into kind of the company where uh, your shareholders, so your owners in the company, but the kind of control and ownership has been delegated to, for example, the board of directors, then yeah, you're kind of even more separated. You're still legitimately owners, and but that still doesn't give you authority to make use of the stuff. So this really um, claim that this is an ethereal um, claim really just doesn't take into account the nature of shared ownership, even in partnerships. So this, again, is not a real argument against shareholding. Now, this this final section on shareholder responsibility, um, you know, as I said, we're going to discuss here both some of the stuff that we find in the article, but also in the recent live stream. And so the first thing I want to do, though, is I want to distinguish between authority and responsibility. So there's a lot of discussion about responsibility, but there's very little discussion about authority. So responsibility, you're always responsible for something. It's always an end or good that you you should be pursuing. So for example, if you're a father, 
you are responsible for your children. You're responsible for their proper behavior, that they grow to be good moral citizens, and so forth. So that's a particular end that you need to pursue. Now, authority is a particular moral power that you have to enact what is necessary to achieve that end. So authority is always potential. You can always uh, act or not act. So you can you know, discipline or not discipline your children. You can teach them morals or not. And so here this is very important as well. So I typically prefer to talk in terms of authority rather than responsibility, but they are intimately connected. So um, the first thing to note is the, the degrees of authority. So part of what they dispute is that someone who owns some shares in a company, generally and individually, you will not have enough shares to uh, really affect the company. So, um, and that you'll have a very small say in the company. So part of this goes again to the very nature of partnerships. So your authority over the company is going to be proportionate to how much you are invested in it. So the person who puts in $5 is not going to have as much say and authority as someone who puts in $1,000, even in a basic um, partnership, even in something like a societas. So if you guys are arguing about, well, should we go to Antioch or should we go to Cyprus? Those who are more invested have greater authority. And so, yes, you can invest more and try to obtain more authority and more control over the company. But the degree of authority is proportionate to how much you invested. And that's simply in the nature of partnerships of the shared authority or the shared ownership. Now, uh, Mark and Jacob note this argument. So they say that someone might say this is a quantitative difference, whereas really they insist that it is a qualitative problem. And this is where it gets, um, in my opinion, somewhat strange, because they argue that the kind of responsibility and authority that the board of directors has and maybe shareholders is extrinsic. And it's not, the problem with it is it is not the intrinsic fruit of labor. And they cite John Paul um, here uh, suggesting that you know this isn't a real authority. This isn't real ownership because it's not uh, the intrinsic fruit of labor. And so this appears to me to be extremely problematic. So in footnote 22 of this essay, they say, quote, through our juridical systems, we have enabled one to lay claim to a possession that he never operates or a property he has never even seen to call a piece of earth, quote, his own, without working it. This creates a pretense of ownership in conflict with, quote, the very nature of 
these means, that is capital, and their possession, unquote, laborum extrichens. Now, I've read laborum extrichens, and um, from my reading of it, what um, John Paul is talking about there is he's talking about the primordial source of ownership is in labor. So when you first go out into the world and you act on something, in order for it to become yours, you have to somehow labor on it. You have to dig it out of the earth. You have to cut down the tree, something like that. But he's not saying this is exclusively the way that ownership is obtained. And that appears to be what Jacob and Mark are claiming. It seems that they're claiming that ownership needs to be the intrinsic fruit of labor, that you have to be working for it. However, this would entail that exchange as such is uh, does not actually grant uh, does not actually grant ownership. It's only a pretense of ownership. And here they even talk about taking possession of uh, property or land that you never operate. But if I've bought the land, I have obtained the ownership from someone else. And so if that person probably obtained it from someone else. And going back, though, maybe someone did work the land and claim it for themselves and then sold it and sold it and sold it and sold it, and now I'm buying it. And maybe I hire people to work it for me. But this type of thing just seems to be manifestly false, that this type of authority and ownership needs to be the intrinsic fruit of labor. Really, the shareholders are the owners of the company. The authority of the directors is a delegated authority. They have received it from the shareholders. And that's really just in the nature of authority as such. For example, if I own a business and I hire someone, I give them authority I delegate that authority to make use of the various pieces of capital in the company. So if I own a restaurant, I authorize the chef to use the stove. And this is what would distinguish someone uh, who just came in and just started using it, is that I did not give them the authority. I did not delegate that to them. So really, there, there really is not this qualitative difference because there's this mistaken understanding of ownership and its origin and the, the logic behind it and the way it can be um, delegated. And this also has to do with Jacob's later claim in the podcast where he complains about how control and ownership are separated. So in a sense, yes, the, the uh, shareholders are the owners but they have delegated control to the board of directors. And this is not any different than anything else, as I just explained. So um, if, you know, if these things were true, and if Jacob and Mark um, really wanted to hold this, they need to apply these principles then to everything else and see how these work out. So there's a certain 
I'm proposing a certain um, ad absurdum argument there that this is clearly false because it would contradict all sorts of uncontroversial things if we really played it out to the end. So that is all aside. So uh, next in the in the uh, live stream, they had uh, an objection whether shareholders have real authority because the board of directors is not bound by the majority decision of shareholders. So shareholders can put forth a proposal and to be voted on. And if those uh, shareholders, a majority of them, vote in favor of this, the board of directors could still reject that. So the, the thoughtful person should ask themselves, well, why? And part of the answer is going back to the, the way in which the board of directors have been delegated authority. So the board of directors has been given authority over the company, and they, they've been delegated this authority by the shareholders. And so they've been given responsibility to uh, the good management of the company. And they have the authority to enact that. Now, that responsibility is called a fiduciary responsibility, which means they need to act in the best interests of the business and the shareholders. Now, for example, in the insurance industry, some agents have a fiduciary responsibility. So when they sell you a product, they can't just sell you uh, a product that fits well but maximizes their commissions. They have to give you or sell you the product that is in your best interests. And so this is the type of responsibility that the board of directors has. Because they've been delegated this authority, this responsibility to manage the company. And so if the majority of shareholders vote in favor of something that is bad for the company, so say they want to lower everyone's wages, or they want to shut down a factory, or they want to do something else that would be uh, detrimental to the company, then yes, the board of directors has authority to not enact that. In fact, they have a responsibility not to. Now, this, I think, is consistent with what Benedict XVI says in Caritas in Veritate, because in that he talks about how uh, the management of the company, so the board of directors, ought not to take merely the investors into account, but also stakeholders. So that fiduciary responsibility explicitly positions the board of directors as considering not only investors, but stakeholders. And that, I think, is very central. So, And so it's consistent with that. There is that. So that objection really does not hold. The shareholders have a real response, a real authority. They can really put forth proposals for change in the company. They can really propose these change. The board of directors does have the authority and the responsibility 
to reject those sometimes. And this seems to be consistent with several parts of post-liberal thought, where, for example, in the state, the state has a fiduciary responsibility for the country. And so if the will of the people is contrary to the common good, the state ought not to enact the will of the people. They ought to pursue the common good. So again, this seems consistent with the teaching of Benedict XVI, with um, post-liberal thought, and just right reason. So it seems false to, to bring this forward as uh, an objection against uh, shareholding as a real authority. Now, we come to uh, what I'll call the dog argument from uh, Mark here. And really, the central part of the dog argument is that um, if, a, if you own a dog and the dog bites someone, then you have to be responsible for that. And if you're not, then the police are going to come after you or something. So fundamentally, and then he goes on to various things, and fundamentally, Mark is equivocating between authority and responsibility and between moral and legal responsibility. So, and, and it's really interesting because if you pay close attention to what Mark says, you can kind of see how, um, you know, he'll, he'll apply one principle to the dog and one principle to the the um, the stockholder, and he mixes it all up. So to kind of walk through this, so the owner of the dog is responsible for the dog and has authority to enact and achieve what he's responsible for. So his authority may or may not be, quote, activated, as um, Mark says, or exercised. So if that dog bites someone, the owner may or may not do something about it. They may or may not act on their authority, but they remain responsible. There is that end that they need to do something about that dog. They are liable for that person who has been bitten. There's responsibility there. Now, also, he has authority over the dog, so he may or may not train or feed the dog or anything else. But he remains responsible for the dog. Now, there is a moral responsibility over the dog, and there is a legal responsibility over the dog. And not every moral responsibility is enforced in law. So, he may be legally responsible if it bites someone else. So there are laws in place where he has to do something about that. He has to, it's criminal for him not to. But there may be other things where he is responsible, but it's not a legal responsibility. No one's going to come after him if he doesn't fulfill these responsibilities. So if he doesn't, you know, feed his dog well, the right foods, if he doesn't train him well, as long as it doesn't reach a certain level of neglect, then he may not be held legally responsible. 
though he remains morally responsible and he is morally negligent, even if the law doesn't come after him. That's the main point. There is no difference in the case of stocks. So you have voting rights. You have the right to propose changes. You have the ability to lobby management. If the company is not acting rightly, as the dog might, you may or may not act on this. You may not use your authority or exercise your authority, but you remain responsible, and that's exactly the USCCB's point. You are responsible for trying to drive change if the company is not acting um, righteously. So, you have both a moral and legal responsibility. But just because the state doesn't come after you doesn't entail you are not responsible. And here, this is where um, Mark confuses authority and responsibility. Because he thinks because you don't have to vote and people aren't going to come after you if you don't vote, that you're not responsible. But it's only in that legal sense that you're not responsible. You're not criminally liable, but you still remain morally liable, and that's the USCCB's point. Now, indeed, there still is ways in which shareholders can be legally responsible for the unrighteous behavior of a company. For example, when a comp- the way that this is phrased is that when the company is acting as a type of alter ego of the shareholder, so it's kind of acting according to his will, then the shareholder could be held legally responsible for those type of illegal activities. So that is a very limited case. And so there is a question about, well, where do you draw the line? Because when you have many partners, as opposed to a sole proprietor of a dog, there's a question of, well, who has the authority to do what and when? Because a lot of that authority has been delegated to the um, to the board of directors. So if you're hiring people uh, to, uh, you know, cook up hamburgers and stuff, and they put something in the, the food and give it to people, uh, you know, who is responsible for that and who is to be held liable? And so those are good questions, and those are other things that we might consider. Should we expand the legal responsibility even more? Uh, should shareholders be legally liable for slave ho- for the slavery that Apple uh, is involved in? But it doesn't cut to the very nature of um, shareholding itself, because you are still morally um, responsible. So. If you own shares in Apple, you ought to be working towards them not doing that anymore. And that's an important point. So now we come to kind of the the main point, though, of the the live stream where they talk about how uh, the USCCB's guidelines seem to exclude uh, mutual funds entirely. And the, the very plain reading of the text is that this is referring specifically to shareholders. I, I think that is ex- just 
very clear from the text. And even the part where it says, uh, you know, a proxy for management. So even if Mark and Jacob were correct, you're not giving a proxy to the management of the company that you're invested in, but into the mutual fund. So if the if the voter in the mutual fund is not acting righteously, maybe you should go to a different mutual fund. But there is a fundamental difference between shareholding and mutual funds. And I posted this comment on um, the YouTube video. So a shareholder owns a claim against a company, and he has those rights that accrue to it that we've discussed. So, you know, ability to put forth proposals and vote, you know, he can even go and lobby. And these are the things the USCCB says one ought to do. But the mutual fund account holder is not buying any of those stocks. He is investing in the mutual fund. He is buying shares of the mutual fund. And so the money he gives to the mutual fund, they may not even be able to buy the shares if you, the amount you give is not enough because you have a claim against the all of the assets proportionate to the amount you put in. You don't have claim, um, you have a you have a certain set of claims, I should say. So you can leave the mutual fund. You can't take the shares and the assets with you because you don't own them, but you can leave and redeem the value of your account, which often means they have to sell the assets. So there's really not even the presence of a type of ownership over those assets. And so you've never, you'd never surrender your right to vote because you never had it. The mutual fund is what actually owns the asset, that corporation, and you're investing in that corporation. You're not investing in the underlying assets directly. So, but even if we granted that um, this did um, exclude stock mutual funds, it would not exclude bond mutual funds because the USCCB is specifically talking about shareholder and shareholder rights. Now, bonds do not involve those rights. And so it's a somewhat misleading of Jacob and Mark to say that it excludes all mutual funds when bonds is an entire asset class, a traditional asset class, that um, you can invest in. And as I've argued in other podcasts, bonds are not themselves usurious, so potentially they're licit, um, so they're not intrinsically evil. Um, so that kind of covers a lot of what I, I wanted to cover. This has gone over the time I hoped I would, but uh, you know, if I missed anything, if you have any questions or I... I said something wrong, please let me know. Uh, leave a comment, send an email. I'm happy to continue the discussion. But thank you for listening.